And so I want to ask God for wisdom. But before I do that, I want to invite all of us to be asking for wisdom because preaching is more of a team sport. Uh, You and I are both involved in the work of preaching because God is involved in the work of preaching. God is the one who is speaking to us, who is revealing himself to us. And so I want us to join together in asking for wisdom, not only for myself as I preach this word, but also for you, that the Lord would be kind to you, that he would reveal himself to you and would speak to you uh, in this word. So let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are in need of your wisdom. We are in need of your direction. Father, I pray that you would help us this morning to hear from you. Lord, I recognize that I am a servant of yours. And so, Lord, I ask that you would use me, that you would speak to us as this community. And just guide us, Lord, as we seek to understand this passage. I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever felt conflicted when reading the Scriptures? Do you ever read the Bible and think, how does this passage help me at all? We believe that the Scriptures are revelation. Through this written word, God reveals himself to us. He instructs us. He shapes us into the community that believes and affirms the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there are certain passages. Passages like the one that we just read that are very difficult to understand. Many agree that this particular passage is among the most difficult to make sense of. Not only is it hard to understand, it is hard to discern its usefulness for us. And yet we recognize that all scripture is God-breathed, that it is useful for our instruction. How can this passage about head coverings be meaningful for our lives? I mean, take a look around. I don't see any head coverings. And you, like, uh, you probably are thinking to yourself, how does this passage that seems so strange and foreign to us speak a word from the Lord to you and I? What is this passage about? How does this passage shape our understanding of God and one another? Well, first we have to realize that this passage isn't primarily about head coverings. It is about a greater, more important question. How should men and women relate to one another in the church? How does one's understanding of gender affect our interaction with one another and with God? This is a passage about God, about worship, and it assumes a direct correlation between the way that you and I relate together and the way that you and I relate to God. If we cannot understand what it means to be in community with one another, then we will not understand what it means to be in community with God. Throughout this letter, you and I have been asked to change our thinking. Throughout this series, we have been challenged to recognize that we are not individuals, but members of the body of Christ. Individuals have little regard for others. Individuals think only of themselves. In the coming and going of life, there is space for only one. My thoughts, my wants, my freedom. But in the church, the place where God's people dwell, there is room for one another. In God's community, we become imitators of Christ, and in doing so, bless one another. 
this kind of living together takes a certain kind of sacrifice, a daily sacrifice, a serious consideration for one another. In the church, we seek to glorify God and honor each other. But if you've been in any church long enough, even in this church, or if you've listened to any of these sermons, you have to realize that community living isn't easy. The church isn't made up of people who are just like me. There are other people here. People with different needs, different abilities, and they matter just as much as I do. But when I think of church and my relationship to the church as if I were an only child, expecting the family to only focus on me and only me, I become part of the dysfunction. So in the subsequent chapters, beginning here, we will be instructed in relating with the other, the other person, the other member, the other gender. And that brings us back to the question of our passage, how should men and women relate together? It has been a question that has been asked and answered for many years. Some in seeking equality between men and women have sought to minimize the difference between the two. We have to recognize that it is important and necessary to pursue equality. Men and women are equally valuable in the sight of God. But equality doesn't mean sameness. The pursuit of equality between men and women in our society should be celebrated, but recognizing our distinctiveness doesn't contradict our desire for equality. But it can. Some, in emphasizing the distinctiveness of men and women, end up diminishing the value of one in light of the other. I think, for example, of the great theologian Augustine, who once wrote this, I don't see the sort of help women was created to help man with. If one excludes the purpose of procreation, if women were not given to man for help in bearing children, what help could she be? To till the earth together? together? Well, if help were needed for that, then God should have provided another man. The same goes for comfort and solitude. How much more pleasure is it for life and conversation when two friends live together rather than when woman and man cohabitate? In other words, what good can women provide other than the making and raising of children? Augustine is a great hero of our faith, and we are indebted to him for many reasons, but this particular quote is both offensive and absurd. Yet in reading this quote, we recognize that properly understanding the differences between men and women keep us from dishonoring one another. In our scripture passage, though often misunderstood and misused, helps us in our relating to one another. The church is the place where men and women are called to come together to glorify God. Here we are called to stand as witnesses of the God who acts in love. So how are we instructed by this passage? When men and women honor each other in our differences, we glorify God together in our worship. That is the central truth of this passage. And we will come to see that it is a necessary and relevant truth for our church today. The more time we spend with the church in Corinth, the more I am convinced that our cultures are very similar. 
some of the questions that they asked, some of the desires that they had are not all that different than the ones that you and I have. And it is, it is important to know that much of what Paul writes in this letter is a response to the questions and concerns that came from within the community. So if you have your Bible with you, please turn again back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. I want us to read this passage again, and we will unpack it and make sense of it together as a community. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if, a, man would not, for if a, a wife would not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things come from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is disgraceful for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. In a lot of ways, the Christian faith was radical. Paul, in particular, had proclaimed that in Christ there was a new reality. In this new reality, men and women, Jews and Greeks, masters and slaves were all one in Christ. Whether you were a man or a woman, you have access to God. That was part of the message of the gospel. You can know him and experience the joy of being a part of his new community. You know, we sometimes recognize the great change that took place when Gentiles could join with Jews to know God through Jesus Christ. Jesus was not just the Jewish Messiah, he was the Savior of all the world. But we unwrap the religious and cultural significance of women being welcomed into the assembly of God's people. The gospel tore down the wall of hostility, not just between the nations, but between man and woman. Men and women were free to join together in worship, in glorifying God because of the work of Jesus Christ. But what did this new reality mean? What did it actually mean that men and women were one in Christ. There were two general beliefs that arose from this new reality. The first belief was that this newfound freedom in Christ meant independence as an individual. If I have the same rights to stand before God as the person next to me, 
what do I have use for for the person that's next to me? What good is a husband? What good is a wife? What good is a family if I can provide for my own spiritual needs? The second belief that arose from this new reality was the idea that with the gospel, gender distinctions had been erased. If men and women had the same access to God, then there weren't any real differences between the two. Gender was a meaningless category, and any behaviors which said otherwise could be disregarded. It is with this in mind that we begin to understand the significance of the head covering. Head coverings were a cultural symbol for gender distinction. In the first century, gender was marked by hairstyle and clothing. By removing their head covering, in the case of men, or by putting on the head covering in the case of men, or by removing it in the case of women, the church was expressing their belief that they were independent of one another and that gender was meaningless. So Paul's instruction to the church is simple. Your dress should reflect a right understanding of God and one another during worship. To the men in Corinth, Paul says, do not wear a head covering. To the woman in Corinth, Paul says, wear a head covering. The passage speaks to us not because it tells us what to wear and what not to wear. It speaks to us because in his reasoning, Paul helps us to understand the nature of our worship when we relate to one another as God intended. The first reason Paul provides for visibly representing our difference is this. Everybody has a head and every head can be shamed or honored. In other words, it is shameful to act as an individual when you are bound to one another. Look at verses 2 through 6 with me again. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the distinctions even as I, or the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut off her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Paul is concerned first to address the idea of individualism. Every person is connected to a head. The head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. No one is an island onto him or herself. Each person is under the leadership of someone else. He is speaking against the belief that says, I am an individual, I am autonomous and responsible all by myself. No, Paul says, you are a part of a community. A community that works its way up to God. By misusing the symbol of distinction, the head covering, the members of this community are basically removing any symbol of connection to one another. It would be as if I were to remove my wedding ring whenever I preached. The symbol itself has no real significance. I am not legally divorced from Meredith when I remove this ring. But if I remove this ring with the intention of proclaiming that I am a free man, it would be wrong. 
the symbol takes on a new importance. My behavior would have to be rejected as shameful. It would dishonor my wife, our relationship to one another, and ultimately, our relationship to God. You are connected to one another. Wives, your husband is your head. Now, what does that mean, head? Well, it is a metaphor from the body, obviously. And it works on two levels. First, we are members of the body, the body of Christ. But each one of us, then, is the body and must follow the direction of our head. The head guides our movements. It leads. The rest of the body takes its cue from the head. So what does it mean, then, that the husband is the head of the wife? Does it mean that the husband gets to be in charge? Does it mean that the husband makes the rules and should decide where and how things should go? Not if we've heard Paul and his discussion on leadership from earlier in the letter. Several chapters ago, Paul instructed us on what it means to be a leader in the church. The primary metaphor of a leader is a chief servant. Husbands, you are the chief servant of your house. Yes, you lead, but you lead in the manner of Christ. Do you remember what Christ said to his disciples? He said to them, you know those Gentiles and how they rule over one another? And how the great ones exercise authority over them? But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be a servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So yes, husbands... You are the head of your wife and your household. But never confuse headship with ruling. Headship means you are the first to lead by serving your wife and your family. The best leaders look not to their own best interests, but to the interests of others. They seek to provide the most ideal environment for others to grow. Like a gardener, you encourage, you protect, you help those entrusted to your care so that they might develop into healthy followers of Christ. That is your responsibility, husbands. You are responsible and will be held accountable for this task. Everybody has a head, and you, husbands, have Christ as your head. So you follow his lead. You follow his example. And you will be held accountable for your ability to manage to lead your household well. You know, I have to confess to you that I was very convicted by this passage this week. If I could be honest with you, I need to grow in my ability to lead in our home. Leading in this way means taking initiative to encourage godly habits. Too often, we husbands are too passive and wait for our wives to nudge us towards spiritual maturity. Men, we have to stand up. We have to be the first to encourage devotion to God in our homes. Now, some of us might be wondering, how does this relate to my particular situation? I am not a part of a household where there is a husband and a wife. And I understand that. I was raised by my mother and my father was nowhere to be found. And so I ask myself, what does this passage say to us, to those of us who are divorced, those of us who are widowed, those of us who are single? 
How does this passage speak to us? Well, those of us. Well, the principle remains the same. Everybody has a head. You are not an autonomous individual. If you are single, divorced, or widowed, your head is Christ. Just as the husband follows his lead, you are to do the same, and in doing so, recognize that you are a part of the body of Christ. You are a member of this community. All of us are following a head. We are a part of a body. And this passage is ultimately about honor and shame. When we acknowledge our relationship to our head, we bring honor on ourselves, our head, and ultimately to God. To act as though we are not related to our heads is to act dishonorably. That is the meaning of verse 6. Paul's comments about short hair is hyperbolic language. In the first century, short hairstyles were not feminine like they are today. They weren't pretty. They were shameful. Women who cut their hair short did so out of humiliation. Paul is basically saying, fine, if you, want to, if you don't want to wear a head covering, just go ahead and cut it all off. And everyone receiving this message would say, no, 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 no. That's shameful. Of course we would never do that. Paul says exactly. It's the same thing. To not wear a head covering, to not visibly demonstrate your distinction, is to be shamed. To do something that is dishonorable. You know, there is something that I have left unstated so far in this passage that is a very important aspect of this scripture. This passage has been misused many times to diminish the role of women in the church. But keep in mind, the issue Paul is addressing is occurring during public worship. It is when men and women are prophesying and praying together that head coverings becomes an issue. In other words, Paul encourages men and women to pray and prophesy in the local assembly. Now, what does this mean, prophecy? I believe it is a way of giving an applicable address concerning who God is and what God is doing for the benefit of others. We'll come back to that in chapter 14. But it is a sort of ministry of the word. Our church services today are very different than the church services in Corinth. Then you would see this as a sort of homily, a teaching or encouragement, perhaps before the main sermon. And Paul encourages both men and women to do this. So let me give you a word of encouragement. Women, there are some of you here today who have been gifted by God to communicate his word. You have a sense that God has gifted you in this way. I need to encourage you. If God has given you a gift, you are responsible to nurture that gift through prayer and discipleship. If God has gifted you, then work to grow in your gifting. Seek help, seek affirmation, seek opportunities to use your gift to bless the community. When God gives gifts, gifts he doesn't intend for them to go unused. He wants you to bless his people by serving one another in our gifting. Now, that may take some creativity. Perhaps you don't see any avenues of using your gift, but I want to encourage you to think creatively. Work with others. Consult our leaders to think about ways that you can have this gift nurtured and make use of this gift so as to bless our community. 
But this responsibility doesn't fall solely on the women of the church. I want to encourage our leaders as well, elders and pastors especially. There are members here in our church that have been gifted by God. And part of your responsibility as leaders is to encourage, to disciple, and to come alongside of them to help nurture the gift that God has given them. And in light of our passage today, and in light of the history of misinterpretation, I want to encourage you to specifically look out for women in our church who need to be affirmed in their gifting. In some ways, you can better see the opportunities of service than many of us as members can. Help them to discover ways that they can bless our community through the gifts that God has given. That is what we must strive for as a community. We are called here to reject individualism and embrace community living. Everybody has a head and everybody can be shamed or honored by the ways we interact together. Well, there is far more that we could say about this passage, but we need to move on to the next section, to the second reason that Paul gives for visibly representing their gender distinctiveness. And this is the reason that he gives. He says, from the beginning, men and women were created distinct, but mutually dependent. The story of creation demonstrates our uniqueness and dependence on one another. Look at verses 7 through 12. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. So man, for as man was made from man, or as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Remember when I said that this passage is known as one of the most difficult to understand? Well, this particular section is part of the reason for that. Let's summarize this section broadly, and then as best as we can, as much as time will allow. Let's examine some of the important details to help us understand how this passage speaks to us. Broadly speaking, these verses communicate this truth. Gender distinction and mutuality was not... It was, let me say this again. Gender distinction and mutuality was intended from the very beginning. We were created this way. Male and female, he created them. If the reasoning in verses 2 through 6 address the belief of autonomous individualism, verses 7 through 12 address the belief that men and women are basically the same. There is no distinctive, some might say. If we are one in Christ, we must be one in being and relationship. But this is not so. In our distinctiveness, we discover our mutuality. And this was God's intention all along. For his reasoning, Paul turns to the creation narratives in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And that should frame our understanding of verse 7 in particular. Paul is referring to the created order. We shouldn't conclude that woman is inferior, but instead we should see these verses in terms of relationship. This, this is what I mean. In the beginning, God created man in his image, as his image bearer. 
In his existence, man was made to bring honor and praise to God. In his right relating to God, he honors God as his image bearer. Now we have to ask, we have to pause from the narrative and say, does Paul intend to say that woman is not created in the image of God? Of course not. If man was created in the image of God and woman was created from man, then woman is therefore created in the image of God. The two, while distinct, are linked together. But let's keep going in our narrative, in the story of Genesis. So man is in the garden. He's there alone. And it was not good for man to be alone. You see, to be an image bearer is to be able to relate in community, and man was without community. So God made woman from man for man. To say that woman is the glory of man is to say that woman brought honor and praise to man. As one commentator says, the woman complements the man in a richer reality. Man gains a relationship partner and is able to be a better image bearer because he learns how to relate to his partner. So yes, woman was created from man and for man. She is different. She is other. She is not inferior, but other. And this difference provides the reasoning for a different kind of apparel, a different kind of clothing. Her head covering is a sign of God's created order. Our gender distinction is not a cultural, social construction. It was intended from the very beginning. And our practices in worship should reflect our Creator. It is as if our worship is a stage performance. We are enacting the story of God's creation and redemption of humanity. And through our worship and our right relating to one another, we honor God as we proclaim who He is and what He has done. This is the intention of the passage about the angels, for the sake of the angels. The angels are a sort of guardian for right worship of God. Throughout the Old Testament we see this, that they are often in the place where God is being glorified and honored. They are a sort of guardian for right worship. So as we worship, as we are performing this, this, this spectacle to demonstrate who God is and what God has done, angels are watching on as guardians of this worship. And so we act in a way that is fitting, in a way that is proper, so as not to offend the angels. Verses 11 and 12 reinforces the principle of interdependence. Just as woman came from man, so now man comes from woman signifies a kind of mutual relating that must take place within the community of God. We need to value one another as distinct members of this community. I think it is a problem when we define our distinctives as men and women solely on the basis of function. I don't think we will get very far if we only think of ourselves by what we can do or what we cannot do. It is far better, according to this passage, to talk about who we are and how we relate to one another. Let's think of maleness and femaleness not simply in terms of function, but in terms of being and relating. Let each of us ask, how does God's intentional creation of male and female determine who I am and how I relate to others? 
It is in this acknowledgement of difference that we come together to honor one another and glorify God. So we've heard that it is important to embrace our difference as male and female, first because everybody has a head, and second because our differences were intended from the beginning. Finally, in our passage, Paul reasons it would be inappropriate for men and women to minimize these differences. Since maleness and femaleness come from God, it would be inappropriate to act in ways that disregard our gender. Look at the final verses in our passage, beginning in verse 13. Just for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is disgraceful for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Thus far, Paul has appealed to our belonging to, our, to a community and to our Creator. Now he asks his listeners to judge for themselves. In the same way that they would have agreed with his appeal to nature as it related to the shaved head, the audience would easily agree that men should not wear their hair long. Why? Because in their day, it was an obvious example of men rejecting their maleness in order to embrace femininity. Today, Paul might say, does not nature teach you that if a man wears a dress, it is a disgrace for him. That is essentially the, the modern day question. If, if a man came in here wearing a dress, it would be disgraceful. It would be shameful. So he is saying here in these final verses, you can see for yourselves. Be observant. Men and women are naturally distinct. Just look around. Maleness and femaleness are natural categories that should be embraced, not rejected. We live in a culture that is conflicted about gender. Our culture today contends that gender is fluid. Male and female are just two categories along with many others. But if we are to follow God's order, His created order, and if we are to learn from His scriptures, we have to affirm its teaching. Male and female, He created them. These are the only appropriate categories for describing human ontology and human relationships. Our self-understanding, our relating to one another, even our outward appearances should affirm God's created order. We are distinctly male. We are distinctly female. And in relating with one another, we, uh, in relating with one another appropriately, we honor one another we honor ourselves, and we glorify God. So let's look back to our original question. How should men and women relate to one another in the church? Well, we should recognize our differences so that instead of minimizing them, we find ways of honoring one another. And in doing so, we glorify God and we remind ourselves of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God sent his son to rescue those of us who were separate and distinct from him. We were far from God. We were other. Yet through faith in Jesus, those who were once far have been brought near and have become reconciled to God. 
But the gospel doesn't end there. The gospel continues by transforming each one of us and calling us to join together as his body. And when we come together, we discover that we are not all the same. The gospel doesn't call us to become one with those who are already like us. The gospel calls us to be one with those who are different but have been brought near by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we proclaim this gospel when we love one another, when we honor one another, when we relate with one another in a way that celebrates our differences but demonstrates our unity in God. So let's reject our culture's desire to be named as individuals. Let's reject our culture's desire to say that gender is fluid and meaningless. Let's, just, let's join together as a diverse family of men and women to honor one another and glorify God. In a recent commercial titled Finger People, the operating system Android depicts various finger people, people created out of fingers, relating in very diverse settings as very diverse people. There are wrestlers, there are aliens, there are werewolves, all sorts of people relating in their various distinct places as distinct people. But by the end of the one-minute clip, we see that all of these different finger people come together to the same place. They gather around a table. They eat together. And at the end of the commercial is the slogan, Be Together, Not the Same. If any one of you is in marketing like Google, you know that that's a brilliant campaign. But it's also instructive for us. When we ask the question, how are men and women to relate together? We hear the same thing. Be together, not the same. Because when we come together as distinct people, as male and female, not only do we honor ourselves, we honor one another and we bring, we bring glory to God. So men, women of Good News Bible Church, be together. Be a body that is a witness to what God is doing. But don't be the same. Embrace our differences because in doing so we are proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your word to us today and pray, Lord, that we would be helped to put these things into practice. Lord, we pray that we would be able to honor one another and in doing so, bring glory to you. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.